Welcome to the moment that changed everything, where we interview notable creative people to gain insights into how they got started and learn more about the moments that shaped them and their careers. Today on The Moment That Changed Everything, guest host and president of the National Advertising Challenge, Lawrence Metric, sits down with David Kaufman. David has had an illustrious career targeting high net worth clients. The Stronics at Magna Golf Club and Mancus, where he led the development of Four Seasons private residences in Toronto. He's also spent time in broadcasting as the producer and co-host of his own show, Alternative Investing on the Business News Network. Currently, he's president and CEO of Westcourt Capital, an investment firm he founded in 2009. In this episode, David shares his experience working from home and managing the portfolios of some of Canada's wealthiest families and institutions, as well as the uninspired story behind the naming of his company. David Kaufman is a non-practicing lawyer and president and CEO of Westcourt Capital Corporation. The firm's primary focus, and this is probably written by a copywriter, <laughs> is on the preservation of capital and the generation of attractive risk adjusted returns under any market conditions. Obviously a copywriter without any sense of humor. Um, but however, I bet your clients are kind of pleased with that at the moment. They, they David, are. David, welcome, sorry. Thank you, I'm happy to be here, Lawrence, and thank you for having me. I'm excited to do this today. Okay, uh, so, yeah, sorry. It's, it's not only written by a copywriter, but written by a copywriter who had not envisioned uh, you know, a global pandemic, perhaps. Because uh, under any conditions, it's almost like you need a little disclaimer because we're good at disclaimers, right? In my business, like the disclaimer is like, except for COVID-19. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that in your, uh, no, I guess it's not. Is, is COVID-19 kind of um, an act of God? Well, uh, you know, I don't have a degree in theology, but I will say that uh, the, the, you know, if you think about the Rumsfeldian unknown unknowns in life, that one of the things I've often said to people uh, is that we don't know when the nice, next crisis is coming, but I can predict that it's probably something that we haven't thought of yet. And if you go through the history of financial crises, most of them were, were hard to predict. Now, there's always uh, you know, some sort of soothsayer who will, after the fact, say that they predicted it. And it's a little bit like, you know, I'm a big golfer. And I've always said that if I say I'm about to make a hole in one every time I play a par three, and then when I do, everyone's going to say, he called it. <laughs> and, and, and so, but for the few people that are sort of perma bears and are always saying that the world's about to end and, and the sky is falling, what tends to happen is that we have these crises that happen every seven to 10 years. And, you know, and it's the source of that that is really hard to predict. That they'll come, yeah, it's pretty predictable, but the effect that they'll have and the magnitude uh, and the length uh, of the crisis is often really hard to predict. And we saw the same thing in 2008 and 2009 during the great financial crisis. So what's your day like now? Well, um, I'm really fortunate that uh, the, my wife and kids uh, are, and my dog are up at our country house, which means that they're doing homeschooling and Sarah's doing an amazing job um, sort of navigating through all of that, which means that I'm alone uh, at our house in the city. And so I basically spend uh, 12 hours a day on Zoom calls and Teams calls, uh, fighting with internet, uh, fighting with people, uh, but more, more importantly, working with people um, to deal with 
the, the various human emotions that come with something like this. Because if it's strictly a financial uh, crisis, then most of the emotions surrounding that are, am I going to lose my money? Do I have enough to live on? All the normal questions that you would expect. And of course, at our firm, because we deal with generally ultra high net worth individuals, uh, the, the, the order of magnitude is different, but so is the order of magnitude of the losses. Right, so so that they're not going to have a bake sale anytime soon in order to live. So they're not suffering from the same sort of potential consequences that people facing existential risks are facing. But the numbers are so large that it's very difficult. But in addition to that, they fear uh, what's going to happen in the world. What is is my life going to be the same? Are other people going to be the same? What we're seeing in the U.S. in terms of the civil unrest is that some is this going to be the spark that ignites a new hopefully peaceful revolution in terms of things like income inequality. And these are topics that we deal with. They're far ranging because when you speak with people on a regular basis, and now this, you know, COVID has become more of a marathon than a sprint, you know, like we're sort of 13 weeks into this now. And so that there are clients, many of whom I've spoken to six or eight times over the last 12 or 13 weeks. And if, at first it's, how am I doing? Am I losing money? What are the prospects? But then you get significantly more far-reaching conversations. And one reason that, that I have more in-depth conversations is that I already am the one person uh, who sort of knows all the secrets already because I'm the one person who already is well aware of all of their financial resources and other things that are both positive and negative in the lives of the people you know, that we deal with. And, and so if they have new fears or new concerns, they often talk to me about it, but I'm happy to play that role because that's what an advisor is. It's a lot more than just providing, you know, insular advice on investing. It really is talking about what it is that people are fearful about in the big picture. But are we talking about, I assume there's going to be people who are just pissed that they've lost money, you know, um, and what are you doing about it? So there's going to be probably, let's assume what, 10% of your clientele is going to be there, but now you have 90% of your clientele with time on their hands. Right. So how many people are you dealing with on a daily basis? Right. So what, one of the things that is, that is always true about the human condition is that during any kind of a crisis, the way that I put it is that everyone is the same, but more so. <laughs> so if someone is a worrier, they are much more worried. If someone is, you know, more sanguine about things, they're more Spock-like, you know, more, more, more of a logician during a period like this. And if they're the type of person prone to irrational behavior, then you're going to get even more irrational because all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the flight isn't so smooth, you're experiencing turbulence and you really see what people uh, are all about. And so the nature of the conversations has changed quite dramatically, you know, from March until now that we're talking in June. Most of the original conversations were motivated by fear because as you say, I mean, people, it wasn't just being pissed off, although a lot of people go through this 12, the 12 stages, right? Uh, yeah, when, yeah. when at first they, they, they deny, they don't believe it could be happening. Then they go through anger and acceptance and through, through the whole thing. But, you know, I've, I've always believed that the only two motivations that really matter in life are fear and greed. And you can actually ascribe almost everything that everyone says or does to be uh, either a combination of the two or one or the other taking over. So in March, it was definitely fear. And I heard it in people's voices that not only were they fearful for what was happening at the minute, 
but because of what's called recency bias is that we always tend to think that what's happening now or what happened last week will continue forever, they actually started to become more fearful in a much more general uh, way. As the markets started to improve, and we can talk about that later if you like, but I mean, it's really hard to describe exactly what's so fantastic that the market goes down 30% and up all the way back you know, to where it started, which is almost, uh, well, it's very difficult to explain. What we saw was the greed come out. And the, the way the greed comes out is through FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. A lot of folks who have uh, very high net worths today were also um, uh, very wealthy during the great financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. And that was very much a V recovery, meaning it went down and then it went straight up. And yet most people were too fearful at the time to invest heavily at the bottom. But of course that makes sense because you only know it's the bottom after the fact, right? There isn't a flashing sign that says we're at the bottom, everything's cool. I mean, if you're flying in a plane and you reach your destination and you land, you know that, the, that your turbulent flight is over. But when you're in the air, just because the turbulence stops for a minute does not mean that there's not more turbulence. And so that sense of fear continues. So what we had people doing, as irrational as some people were as a result of fear, we also found that in May, mostly, that people became a little bit irrational with respect to greed. So I'm not calling my clients greedy. I'm talking about the motivation here. And that they didn't want to make the same mistake now that they had made in 2009, which is they never got back in the market when it you know, was on a, what turned out to be an 11 year you know, tear straight up. And so people are saying, okay, should I borrow more money now and, and go all in and invest? And our answer to both the greed and the fear in both cases was in the big picture, has your appetite for risk, your ability to withstand risk changed? And has your return profile changed? Is there some reason that you need to make more money in the next five years now than what you thought you did three months ago? And so in the really big picture, for most people, the answer is no. I, I have a 20, 30 year time horizon. In many cases, we have intergenerational wealth that we're helping people manage. And so there's, this is for my kids or my kids' kids. And you know, COVID is a very serious thing, but it's certainly not gonna affect over the 30 years what happens. And so in most cases, the answer is probably closer to do nothing than do something, both when, 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 the, when the fear is taking over and when the greed is taking over. Because one of the things I have these sort of, you know, Davidisms that I keep saying during this period. Uh, and one of the things that I keep saying, two, two things is no one's going to come through COVID saying, you know, I had too much cash it is a very unlikely thing that people are going to say. Uh, and also, there has never been a financial crisis in history where doing nothing was not the best thing. Now, sorry, say that again. That There's in the history been. of financial crises, going back to the tulip crisis uh, in Holland back in, I guess, the 16th century, um, there has never been a crisis where the best answer, as you looked at all of your investments, wasn't to do nothing. And the reason for that is that the world has a certain degree of equilibrium. And so that, that typically it falls farther than it should, it goes higher than it should, but there's this equilibrium in the middle. And if you're appropriately allocated, uh, if you've allocated risk appropriately, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about investing money or traveling on a road during the middle of the winter, if you allocate your risk appropriately, there are very few conditions that should make you in the big picture change the way that, that you feel about that. But 
but doing nothing and having that cold-blooded approach is the easiest thing for me to say to you here in the, in the comfort of my living room, but it's very difficult to do in real time. So how much of this is talking to your clients about their investments with you and how much of it is their, actually, their actual psychology at the moment, oh, how they're feeling about their lives? I mean, that's a perfect question because the, uh, my partner, Rob Jansen and I are, are both uh, students of behavioral economics which is all about how people react in the face of, of different stimuli, you know, in this case, financial market uh, changes. And there are a number of traps that people fall into because they're human, not because they're stupid and not because they last in, in, lack intellect, but because they're human. You know, so one example is what's called the sunk cost fallacy, which is one of the, one of the things that we've seen the most, which is, that I've already got all of this into this, and so I should keep doing something, notwithstanding the fact that the facts have changed, right? It's like, you know, I often joke around that when I grew up in Montreal and in the middle of the winter when it was minus 30, I was, you know, 20 years old and I would stand in line at some bar and I would find after an hour that I was no closer to the front of the line. And yet I could say, I can't possibly leave now because I've already invested an hour into this. <laughs> and and, and of course, that's irrational, but you can, that's human. You know, the other thing is that is anchoring yourself to a high point, which is if I can only get back to even, then I'll go to cash or then I'll make other decisions as though getting back to even is some sort of God given right. And so what you paid for an investment or anything else for that matter is relevant the day that you buy it, but then it's irrelevant forever. If you're thinking about selling something, the only thing that's relevant is what it's worth then and not what it was worth on some random day, which in this case happens to be February 29th, 2020, which for most people was sort of a high watermark. And so we find a lot of people sort of falling prey to that. And the final behavioral economics thing that we see over and over again is this recency bias, which is that it's very, very difficult for humans to not concentrate on what's happening now and what happened last week and to go back and see the big picture. You know, I was recently watching um, a documentary with my boys who are eight and 10 on uh, voyage to the moon. I don't know if we're ever going to go to the moon again or anywhere else, but it happened a lot, as you know, in the late sixties and early seventies. And I remember thinking as I saw those amazing photographs of Earthrise, you know, that famous photograph, yeah. you know, to, to see the earth rising in the same way that we see the sunrise or the moonrise and thinking when you're that far away, it's sort of like you can see the earth as something in, in, in the concept of billions of years and not 10 days. <laughs> but the closer and closer you get into focusing into on a map, you know, from the world to a country, to a city, to the block you live on, to the house, it, the closer you get to thinking about just that thing and not sort of the bigger picture. The other thing that I think a lot of people don't recognize is that even institutional investors, you know, like the pension funds and, and you know, CPP is a good example. They're managing money for you and for me and for everyone else who's ever had a job and paid into CPP is that the folks who are running that themselves are human. And so what they try to do is they try to develop methodology and mechanics that don't let their human emotion override the right thing to do. But still, when they sit around that board table and they say, how much did we lose in March? And they say, $20 billion. <laughs> 
that's a big pill to swallow. And it's very, very difficult at that particular time to, to lack emotion. But if you want to think about the kind of people who are trained to lack emotion uh, would be an airline pilot. I mean, as you know, pilots are completely superfluous on, on 99% of flights where absolutely nothing goes wrong. Put it on autopilot, plane takes off, plane flies, plane lands, everything's fine. But when lightning strikes, as a good example, they don't freak out at least they're not trained to freak out. They're trained at that moment to be more precise than ever and more mechanical, more robot-like. And they have policies and procedures and they can open up their little fancy binder to that page and follow the order of events, trying not to let emotion get in the way. Very hard to do. So let's go back a little earlier on in your career because you've had four of them. Yes. Um, one of which is a BNN host. So you're way better at this than I am. <laughs> way more practice. But how did you prepare? Tell us, bring us through what was your, what started you off? What was, oh, better yet, what did you want to be when you were a little kid? Uh, I, well, um, I realized that I probably, uh, well, I realized that I was good at some things and less good at other things. And so- And what, when did that realization happen? Oh, probably when I was like 15, because I was the kid who, who came home with the report cards and I never forget these little yellow books that, that, I, that, that, came, that came home with me after school. And 100% of the comments would be, you know, David could achieve something if he would just apply himself more. And my, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and my answer, and, and by the way, I don't think I'm unique in that regard. And the reason for that was that I was unable to concentrate on the, on the things that really interested on me. And as a sideline, I would point out that whenever I try to mentor young people, I say, uh, that focusing too much on the things that interest you means that you might a not find the things that interest you even more and b that you won't become fully literate in the ways of the world which is why i'm a huge promoter of liberal arts degrees before anyone goes and does their science degree or their law degree or their engineering whatever it, whatever it may be so that you know something about how the world works uh, but i i was very much an athlete and and i knew that i Golf was the sport that I was not only the best at, but probably uh, probably enjoyed the most. Uh, I I was it was let's just say not optional in my house to not go to university and do some uh, do a professional degree. But what was interesting was that my parents were kind of cool about it, where they said we expect you to become a professional and have a vocation, but we do not expect you necessarily to do that for the rest of your life. So they they gave me license to get an education and not necessarily use that education, you know, directly uh, as a vocation. And so that when I went to law school uh, in the early 1990s, and it's kind of hard to believe, you know, that I went all the way through law school without the internet and without email. It's hard to believe now for all these people that are online. I was the very first student at U of T Law, to my knowledge, that ever brought a laptop to class which meant that my notes were in high demand because you could read them. <laughs> uh, but you know, all the way through law school, I really enjoyed law school, but I didn't want to be a lawyer. And I knew that in first year. And so how did I, you stick it out then? Well, that, that's a, a good question. It's because I really enjoyed it. And I went to the one law school in Canada that is almost anti-vocational. And what I mean by that is that a lot of, uh, there's a lot of great law schools in Canada, but many of them are geared towards the vocation of practicing law, which in itself is a whole bunch of different uh, specialties. Uh, whereas at U of T, it is very much considered like a liberal arts, the extension of a liberal arts education. And so I thoroughly enjoyed 
the discourse and the collegiality, I thoroughly enjoyed learning the law because one of the things, I mean, my father uh, was a court of appeal judge and my mother was a partner at Steichman's in Montreal and then later in Toronto. So it was like, I came from a family of lawyers. I didn't have a family business to go into, but I had sort of this, this thing out there. And I realized that it would teach me how to think. And I, I loved reading, I loved learning. Uh, but the idea about docketing my time, which is, you know, still to this day, you know, 30 years later, essentially how it is that lawyers charge for their service is based on time. And we can have a discussion another day about the insanity of that business model. But I, I knew it wasn't for me. At the same time, I was teaching golf full time during the summers and I loved every minute of it. And I said, maybe I can turn this into a business. And so that was sort of the beginning of my 10 years in golf, which is you know, I, I did my articles. I got called to the bar. That was great. I'm still a member of, of, of the bar today in Ontario, which is something I'm proud of. I can still call myself a lawyer and I still apply what I learned in a daily basis, but not necessarily specifically with like legal contracts and things like that. And I knew that I wanted to go and, and try out, you know, try my luck as a golf pro and then open up a golf school. And later I became a general manager at a well-known private club. And so that I had that, that career, which lasted basically from 91 to 2005, which was a lot of fun and very unusual. But going back to my parents, they fully supported it, especially because I had all those degrees behind me and I had sort of, I'd done my part. I'd, I'd become a good person. I'd learned what it was to know things and be well read. And then I wanted to follow my path. So you're a bit of an anomaly that you've had four careers. I mm -hmm. mean, generally the group of kids that are coming out now, out of university are going to have five careers. Yes. Okay? All of which are going to be very different. You just started way before everybody else. So after golf, where did you go? Right. So the, the, well, during golf, you know, I went from being uh, a teaching pro to opening up a golf school. Um, and th that was actually one of the most creative things I'd ever done because in those days, I mean, it's really hard to believe now in 1995, it's really hard for people that weren't around then to understand how cutting edge technology was then, even though now we look back and it seems, you know, like we were Philistines. However, at the time it was very cutting edge. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to open up, I wanted to bring technology into golf and I was a very early adopter of that. And today it is really at the core of golf instruction and all sports. In fact, you know, if you, if you watch sports on TV, technology is what it's really all about and from the viewing experience and from the learning experience. Uh, and, and so I opened up a golf school and then I was very fortunate to be hired as the original general manager at the Magna Golf Club up in Aurora and worked for Frank Stronic and Belinda Stronic, which was a, an extremely interesting phase of my life. It was kind of like dog years where that five years there felt like a full career. And at that point I was able to, you know, build a 50,000 foot clubhouse and go to work wearing a hard hat. I, Frank, uh, I was very fortunate that Frank also handed the keys over to say, there's, a, there's an entire uh, residential development as part of this. Would you like to run that also? And so, you know, I said, absolutely. And remember, I was 30 years old. So that at 50, I look back and think, we always look back and think how immature or th that we were in our younger years. But I mean, I look back and think, I don't know how I had the guts to just say yes. Forget about actually do those yeah. things, right? And yet I just kept trying to take more and take more responsibility. And so that- But what did you know about development at that point? Or were uh, you just seat of your pants? It was total seat of my pants. But the thing is, is that, you know, I know a lot about human motivation. And so essentially 
Um, I knew that there were lawyers involved that could help with all the things that, about which I knew very little. It didn't hurt that I spent my year at Goodman's articling in real estate law. So I actually had some notion of what was going on. But I mean, that's theoretical, right? This is boots on the ground. Um, and I took it in like a sponge. Uh, I worked, you know, uh, probably seven days a week for, for 10 months and five days a week for the, for the other two months of the year. Uh, and I was very motivated by uh, having success because it's great when you have goals. I have to sell this many lots. I have to sell this many memberships. I have to have a clubhouse ready by this date. And, it, and it's great when you have those goals. Um, you know, goals should generally be just out of your reach. As I always say to my kids when we're playing catch and the ball, you know, bounces off the top of their glove. And I always say, if you can touch it and they say, you can catch it, <laughs> you know, and that, that's never actually literally true, but it's always an idea that if you could get close enough for that, you can go one step further. And so, you know, um, I'm very, I, I really subscribe to the Malcolm Gladwell part of this, that timing is everything. And so that I was involved in golf right at the heart of the Tiger Woods era. And so, and also at a time before there were a lot of rules and regulations in the financial markets about how much money they could spend on things like golf, um, which today it's very restrictive. But in those days, uh, you know, a pharmaceutical rep could spend their entire week taking doctors out to play golf because it was totally not verboten. It was actually encouraged. And so that it was a time when it was, it was just the right time to happen to be at the center of the golf world. So from golf, you went to where? From golf, I went to real estate. And so I can, if you think about it, I mean, it's, again, if we go far enough away, it actually looks like there is a trajectory to my life, which is basically that I sell big ticket items to very wealthy people, but the size of the tickets gets bigger over time, you know, <laughs> from a golf lesson to a golf membership to a residence at a golf club. And then I went and worked with the Menkes family uh, doing the new Four Seasons private residences project back in 2005. And that, that was, that really is, you know, from the frying pan to the fire, because now we're dealing with very serious issues regarding zoning and marketing and advertising and sweet design. And again, I had relatively little experience on any of those things specifically, but I had a really good understanding by 2005 about what it was that the wealthy wanted. And, and if you think about it, that is, that is a thread that connects everything in those first three careers is understanding the mind of a wealthy person. Now, I didn't know it at the time, but I was unwittingly preparing for the life that I'm in now, because going back to what we talked about 10 minutes ago, if I'm able to understand what's really in the mind of a person, now all people are similar and wealthy people are similar to each other, but often different to everybody else then I'm better able, you know, I'm better armed for a conversation to really understand uh, and, and speak to them. And it doesn't hurt, Lawrence, that I, I don't think you ever get over this, but at 50 now with, with 30 years in the workforce, I feel that my imposter syndrome is not gone, but it's significantly lower than it was uh, earlier on where you know, uh, here I was hosting a show, as you mentioned earlier in 2010, on, you know, on BNN called Alternative Investing. And uh, a lot of folks would have been watching that saying, this guy's only been in the investing world for the last three years and he's hosting the show. And so if you wanna talk about a little bit of imposter syndrome, uh, anyone who doesn't admit that they felt that earlier in their career is either not very self-aware or they're not really giving you the full story. How did you get that gig? 
So you that's said three actually, years experience. Yeah. So that's a good question. Um, the first of all, how did I pick alternative investing in the first place? You know, like I had a shoot over the years, many, many overtures from Bay Street to come down and work in the financial markets, mostly because I had this black book and I understood how wealthy people think. And so that would be something that would be very attractive to a traditional uh, finance firm on Bay Street. But I knew that, it was, that there was not that much that I could add, mostly because it does matter if you're in the traditional markets. If you're 20 years behind someone, they have 20 more years experience, it's really hard to catch up. And so that I had identified that uh, because we didn't talk that after real estate, I worked in private equity right during the financial crisis. So I saw what pain feels like in every conceivable way. And I knew that coming out of the financial crisis, it was time for me to go into the financial markets because I knew that alternative investments were going to become more popular over time. And in Canada, there was basically zero coverage of that space for the high net worth crowd. And there were a lot of people selling financial products, but there was no one that I could identify that was a leader in the space of helping uh, high net worth investors sort of tell truth from fiction. So I chose that space. And I know that the question is about BNM, but I've got to start there because as I joke around sometimes, it's easy to be a leader in the space when you're the only player in that space. And so okay. that I had sort of carved out an entire niche. And I'm not saying that I invented alternative investing. I'm not saying that I invented due diligence. But Canada is a long way behind uh, uh, the United States and Europe in terms of financial products. And so that in Canada, it seemed very uh, novel. So I also knew that it's hard, that there's no proxy for 20 years of experience. And so the best thing you can do is that you can establish a level of knowledge and trust. So let's not leave out the fact that I, you know, if, 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 if it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert in something, I've put in my 30,000 hours now. And so that I worked very, very hard and I read and I read and I took courses and all of this while I was getting married and having babies. And so it was, it was a very stressful time of my life with a lot of work. But I had done a ton of media in, when I was in golf, started in radio and later went to television. You know, I was a regular in that old show off the record on, on TSN with Michael Landsberg. Michael, I, was, yeah. I was probably on 20 times. And so I started to have a facility with media, but I also found out shockingly that members of the media and people that work in media are just like everyone else, which is that they're fundamentally, I don't want to say lazy, but they love it when someone else does their work for them. I mean, it's a lot easier to eat a pie that's fully baked. So I knew that a alternative investing was coming and it was interesting to people. But I also knew that if I were a BNN and I didn't have a show on alternative investing, that even if we had that Wednesday morning staff meeting and someone said we should have a show on alternatives, that there'd be no one there to produce it and to write it. And they would have no idea where to get the guests because they'd be starting from scratch. So what I did was I, <clears throat> I started by going to the financial post and saying, you've never written one word in alternatives. So I'm going to do an eight part series uh, on alternatives, but I've taken the liberty of writing the first three so that you could, instead of wondering what it would be like, here's what they're going to look like. And so they signed on the dotted line and we, we did a 10 part series that was in 2000. 10 um, and it went really well and, and, and actually that was a very very early adoption of video because we did a video with everyone which was posted to the website now that I look back of course it's shockingly <laughs> you know uh, early and basic but anyway so I went to BNN I knew that if I could host a show on, on alternative investing on BNN that 
that that would elevate me significantly with respect to status and gravitas in the world of investing. So I, I, I went to the, I'll, I'll remember this forever, is that I, I basically, I, I said, here's the first 12 episodes. And I still have this spreadsheet, which is actually really interesting to see. I said, here's the first 12 episodes. Here are the first 12 prospective guests. And here's the copy. And so that I was playing the role of executive producer, producer and host all at the same time. And I said, I can deliver these topics. I can deliver these guests. And here's the copy. Uh, and, and also, I had a portfolio of here's all my appearances on TV and here's the writing I've done. So I wasn't a totally unknown quantity, right. although somewhat. And, and so when I showed that to uh, Jack Fleischman at the time, the, the executive director of BNN, uh, he uh, almost immediately said, I like it. We're going to give this a go. And we'll do, a, we'll do a, instead of a pilot being one episode, we'll do that, those 12 as a pilot. We ended up doing 48 episodes and it was a lot of fun. And then the funny part of that is I remember I thought, well, now that I've got a yes, let me, you know, you don't ask, you don't get, right? So I said, so can we talk about compensation? And I'll never forget this as long as I live. He leaned over the table and he looked right at me and said, I promise it won't cost you a cent. <laughs> <laughs> Who was your first guest? Um, I believe my first, I remember my first guests, like in terms of the, uh, I, I believe my first guest was a guy named Greg Rollmutt who runs uh, an apartment REIT called Centurion REIT. And the interesting thing about that was that, that 10 years later, it's still actually the largest investment that we have at Westcourt. And I had identified him then as a leader in the space because he too was creative in the way that he dealt with buying and managing apartments, which was that, if you wanna talk about something where this is how it's done, I'd say that residential real estate is something that was well understood by the people who worked in it. But he had a bunch of ideas about how he could innovate in that space. And I uh, totally bought into to the idea. And we were the original investors in the REIT. And today the REIT is close to $2 billion in size. And, and he was, I think, the first guest. And the, a number of the other original guests are, are managers that we still allocate to today. And so I think that's kind of fun. Who was the most interesting guest? Well, the... On the, on the BNN series, it really came down to people who made good TV guests. Because one of the things, and you know this very well, and you've done, a, you've done media coaching, I'm sure, for innumerable people, but that, that the important thing for a guest is to, to if, you, if you know what you're doing, and you treat it like you're having a conversation with the host, and, and as you know, that's largely the job of the host, is to make you feel comfortable. Um, the, the, if you sound knowledgeable and insightful and thoughtful, people will think you're smart and people will want to invest with you or people will want to buy into whatever it is that, uh, whatever idea it is, is that, that you're bringing across. And so I think that one of the guests that I really enjoyed the most was a guy named Stephen Johnston, who um, runs a number of different funds, but he was big into farmland. Now, I don't think you could have a more boring topic than farmland. And so I remember that that was one of the ones that Jack and, and the other folks at BNN said, are you sure you want to do 30 minutes on farmland investing? And I said, you don't understand. This is a person that has been in the capital markets for 20 years. And he's worked, this, this guy worked in private equity in Eastern Europe before the wall came down. You want to talk about someone who's done different things. And so what I tried to elicit from him in that show 
was how the world works, how investing works. And then of course we ended up arriving at, you know, Saskatchewan based farmland. And then, you know, it's like, you know, insert sleeping pill here. But I mean, there's only so much you can say that's sexy about farmland, but that is what makes a great guest. The other thing is that you can do with a great guest, and I'm sure you're going to do that to me today at some point, is we, I don't, I'm not a gotcha type of host, but I do like to listen to what the, what the interviewee is saying and follow on on that and ask things that weren't you know, in the notes that were provided in the green sheets beforehand. I remember when I was on the Lang and O'Leary Exchange, because that was after BNN, I ended up hosting the Lang and O'Leary Exchange for five years. Um, and I'll never forget, we had the CEO of the world's largest bus uh, a school bus manufacturer as a guest. And I had the green sheet and all of his people had told us, this is what you should ask. And anyone who knows me knows that someone telling me this is what you should ask is not a good idea. <laughs> I'm immediately thinking, what else? and so he went through his whole thing about the quarterly results and how yellow their yellow was and how fabulous it all was. And I just said to him, why don't school buses have seatbelts? That's what I was thinking about. Yeah. And I've never seen deader dead air than the 10 seconds that followed that question because it took him a while to gather his thoughts because it wasn't in the notes, but that's what makes for great TV. It was exciting. I don't have that question for you. <laughs> <laughs> Although now I'll try and think of one. Yeah. Um, what was the job that you've enjoyed the most? Just pure fun. Like, um, well, uh, probably when I was at, I mean, other than the one that I'm in now, because it's different every day. Uh, and also the fact that I, I have a very, very low chance of getting fired in my current job since I own the firm. <laughs> um, you know, one of the most exciting jobs I ever had for sure was when I was at Goodman's in 1994 articling, um, they did a ton of work for the NHL players association. And there was a position there where they would second a lawyer from Goodman's to the NHLPA for three or four months of work. Now, because I knew I didn't want to practice law, I would have done anything to get out of articling because it was not that purposeful for me, right? It wasn't really a means to an end. It was just a means to itself. Uh, and so I remember the 18 articling students sitting around the table because this is a pretty plum post. And, uh, you know, you, you have turning points in a career. And I don't know why, but I 100% knew that they were going to pull my name out of the hat. And they pull out the name and they say, David Kaufman, you're going to the NHLPA. What no one knew was that we were about to have an epic lockout in the NHL that season. Right. And so I uh, was supposed to go and work and help them with their licensing, which is very much a legal oriented thing. Instead, I went and I was in the war room with the brass, with the players during a four month lockout that was, I'm sure you, you may recall, uh, uh, that the, the level of conflict was very high between the players and the owners at that time. And I got to sit at center ice, so to speak, in all of these meetings. And even though my participation was obviously very limited at the ripe age of 24, I got to soak it in. How did people react? How did people motivate? What was it that Bob Goodenow, who at the time was the executive director of the NHLPA, what did he say to the players? What did he say to some players, but not others? What did he say when the players left the room about the players? What did the commissioner have to say? It was, it was super interesting for me. And it was four of the most interesting months of my life because it was so dynamic. And it's something that I carried with me. And I really learned an enormous amount uh, during that period. I guess you were there during the scandalous part of it as well. 
within HLPA? Well, the, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's unfortunately the question is like, you know, if, if you have to have like, if you have to wonder whether it's the most scandalous period, <laughs> then it, there's certainly, you know, uh, it, there, there was a lot of moving parts, let's put it that way. And so it was, it was not, uh, it certainly was not kumbaya between the players and the owners, but when would it be? But it, it certainly was also not kumbaya on the inside once you get behind the curtain. But isn't that the most fun part is to go behind the curtain yeah. and, and see what's going on? Like I've had a lot of Forrest Gumpish experiences in my life where I was there for important things, but not because I was the important person, but because I happened to be there for different reasons. And that was definitely one of them. Yeah, I remember um, we were doing work for the NHLPA at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was first out, I was, you know, and... We were there for meetings and I remember a lot of it was player agent. So yes. in other words, how is it? And they were telling their players, you've got four months off, get healthy. Yeah. You know, like use it to your advantage. And I remember thinking that's pretty cool. It wasn't about how much more money can we make during that co- next contract or, but it was really about look after yourself during this time. And I thought the NHL was the NHL pay was pretty cool. They were. And, you know, one of the hardest things to do, I mean, it's a union. When you come right down to it, it's a union. But unlike other strikes and lockouts where, uh, you know, if you have a steelworkers strike, uh, one of the things that the steelworkers would be known for, and I, it could be Teamsters, it could be anybody, I just mean any, any sort of traditional union in, in industry, is that they necessarily have to have immediate sacrifice for the greater good so that when their when their children and their children's children enter the industry that they'll have a better relationship with management in this particular case uh now as hard as it is for a steel worker not to get paid for six weeks um when you quantify the amount that these players were giving up (laughs) during that period by not agreeing and a lot of what they were negotiating for can you imagine, Lawrence, if you were in the last year of a contract and it was probably you were done after that, that's money you'll never get back. And it's a lot of money. Now, as it turns out, they did a really good job negotiating and there was revenue sharing and I could go into this and we could have a whole podcast just about that. As it turns out, uh, the players today, everyone that came after should be thanking the players for the hard work that they did and the stick that they showed during that period, because the people that followed had dramatically higher salaries and more perks along the way. Uh, but it's very rare for people to thank the people that came before them because they don't necessarily appreciate the sacrifices. Yeah. And also it's a pretty, you know, it's a short life as an NHL player. It sure is. It sure is. And, and I can tell you as someone who manages wealthy people's money, that when you earn a ton of money in a short period and the tax man takes their piece, which is in Canada, as you know, well over 50%, if you don't have a long-term view and you come from wherever, small town Ontario or from Alberta or Saskatchewan and you've never seen money like that, the money can go very quickly. And unfortunately, we've seen this in all sports, you know, the degree to which, you know, even NBA players who earn often two to three times as much as NHL players do, that somehow they're bankrupt at the age of 45. Uh, and it's, it's extremely sad, but it's because a lot of people get taken advantage of because they have no financial literacy. And so that's one of the things that current agents that are doing their job, they work very hard to make sure that the players will be able to, you know, enjoy the fruits of their four years or six years or eight years in the NHL or whatever sport it is long after they're done playing. Where did you get the name Westcourt? Oh, I wish I had a better answer for you. So, I wanted to pick a name that A, 
was not named after me. So I could have named it, you know, uh, first David? of all, I didn't, I didn't have a last name that was so cool that I could call it the metric. <laughs> I mean, like you, you, it was like someone gave you the perfect tool. I didn't want to call it DK and associates because I felt that that was small. Now it's true that the largest, the largest houses, investment houses in the world, like JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs, like there was a Goldman, there was a Sachs and there was a Morgan or Morgan Stanley, the list goes on and on. But I wanted to have, I didn't want it to be about me because I, I, it was small. So what I wanted to do, and this is a little bit devious, is I wanted to pick a name where a lot of people would hear it the first time and they'd say, oh, I've heard of them. <laughs> and really? So, yeah. And so one way to do that is to pick words that are used in a whole bunch of much better known financial companies' names. You know, like if you think of Westcourt, there's a million firms that have the word West somewhere in their title. And there's a million firms that have the word court somewhere in their title, but there's no West court. There's no East court. There's no North court. There's just a whole bunch of firms that have that. So what I did was the, the, you know, it's funny because I'm going to skip this part of the origin story when I write my biography when I'm 80 years old, but it's a funny story, which is that I started looking at, I, I pulled out um, a map of, uh, of London and I started looking at all the streets because I thought that yeah, English streets, that would give you a sense of history and a sense of gravitas and every good street name in London is already the name of a very well-known financial firm because I was not the first person <laughs> that came up with that idea. So then I started looking at the names of towns and cities in England and every one of those that was any good was taken. So then I thought, let's expand the Commonwealth. And so what I did was, I remember this well, and my wife hates it when I tell this story, uh, but I pulled out the huge atlas that I got uh, from one of, one of my parents' friends for my bar mitzvah. And I can, I can assure you, okay, that the last thing that a 13-year-old boy wants is an oversized atlas. But here, here I was many years later pulling out the atlas and we were, we were lying in bed at the end of a long day. And I said, honey, let's expand this to the Commonwealth. And so I opened up a map of Australia and we just looked at the names of towns. And then there was this one called Westcourt, which is a small town in Australia. And I said, that's a really good name. Sounds like I've heard of it. It's simple to say. It's nice and short. It, it's, it, it has the right alliteration. Westcourt sounds good to me. It sounds strong. And then when I Googled it, the only thing I came up with was like the Westcourt Inn, which was like a tiny little hotel in Westcourt. And so the fact that it was uncharted territory, but that it had that, that sense, that weight to it, meant that it was a perfect name. And then uh, I uh, worked with someone that I had worked with in the past and developed a... Uh, uh, the, the, the logo, uh, the logo and the slogan in about two hours. And I thought, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the compass star, which you see everywhere. It's dramatically overused, but we're going to move the N in the compass star, the North star. And we're going to put the W for two reasons. The idea is that you're supposed to see that and W for Westcourt, but also W, which is go West and historically going West has been what pioneers do. And so I thought, even if people don't, don't, you know, even if it's subliminal, people will, will feel when they see this compass that has a W instead of an N, that something different's about to happen. And to this day, it, it turns out that that logo worked really well. And so did our original slogan, which was conservative alternative. But, uh, and you'll appreciate this as someone in, in marketing and advertising, I added a period after the word conservative and after the word alternative. And those little periods turn those into sentences, turn them into ideas, into principles. And that's very powerful. Uh, although it's not something that people necessarily appreciate, at least literally as they see it. 
Well, now all your clients will know because we're sending for <laughs> every one of them. So they'll understand where it came from. Um, what do you see is next? Well, you know, the, the most, the one common thread among all crises is the idea that this time is different. That's the one thing that you can count on people saying in every crisis, this time is different. Uh, and this time might be different in the sense, in this, in this sense that the world has had uh, sort of a in the deep end test thrown right in the deep end in terms of a lot of big ideas. For example, working from home, so remote work, video calling, um, the way that we greet each other. You know, are handshakes gone forever? Maybe, you know, handshakes didn't always exist and they may not always exist in the same way the United States may not be a superpower forever. And they're doing a pretty good job of ensuring that that's the case. Yeah. Uh, the, so what I think is next is that, that the, two, the two big themes that I see is a change in the way people work, the way they dress, the way they interact, and that could be permanent and it could be very positive. Uh, and the, the, I, not so positive if you're a, a, you know, an office read, <laughs> but, but quite positive in terms of people understanding. You know, there's a democratization of business that is uh, sort of all about technology, that to start up a business like mine today or, or any business, whether it's in financial markets or otherwise, is actually relatively inexpensive because the moat that surrounds businesses that used to exist, which was the enormous amount of capital that it would take to get going, no longer exists largely because of technology. So there's the democratization of that. I also think that a theme that is necessarily uh, uh, significant is income inequality. Uh, and I, I know that that's the last thing that someone would expect, you know, the leader of an ultra high net worth wealth management company to say, but it's both from the point of view of preservation. If you're, if, if you're a one percenter, you would like to stay a one percenter, but not all one percenters are like the monocle wearing monopoly piece. You know, there's a lot of one percenters that actually care about the world and care about the idea that of what progress looks like. And I think that it's never been more obvious than it is right now. And unfortunately, you know, uh, COVID has made a lot of the inequality that existed uh, ever more, not only present, but apparent in that we can all see it. The fact that it so disproportionately affects people of color and less privileged people is something that we ought to take note of not just about COVID, but about the fact that what world do we want to live in? And so the effects of that will be, I believe, that uh, people in business and people that work in, in, uh, in government will have to recognize that, uh, and this wasn't forged recently, but it's coming to a head now, that if you look at the big themes of the next 20 years, uh, that climate change is real, income inequality is real, the nature of work, which of course is for many people, like when you say to someone, what do you do? Very, people, very few people will say, I think a lot. They tell you what their job is. It's part of their identity. Those are big themes. And so I think that what we're going to see is a very, um, a reduction in the time that it otherwise might've taken for those themes to get addressed. And I'm really excited to see how this plays out. And I hope that I'm able to play a part in that, not just through Westcourt, but also in a bigger way that, that if you get leaders and thinkers to act uh, and people like me in my position saying in, income inequality is, is a real thing and wealth redistribution is probably necessary to avoid 
you know, we're now in a sort of soft civil war. And if we want to avoid a hard civil war, I think what we're going to have to do is address all of these things because it, it, the only way that we can really experience success as a society is that if there's more people on that bus. And I, so that is, I, I don't know if that's a bigger answer than you expected, but that's what I think about a lot. And that's what I think is next. And with the income inequality, how do you explain that to your kids? Oh boy, that's a tough one, right? Um, you know, I remember recently my eight-year-old said, daddy, you're rich. And I, and I was really interested in that. And I said, why do you think I'm rich? And he said, because you have that envelope that has all those $50 bills in it. Because we have an envelope that sits in our, in our kitchen that we use uh, to, to, for tipping and to, to, to pay, you know, certain handymen and different things. So to him, that's why we're rich, because we have this seemingly uh, uh, bottomless white envelope with $50 bills. But one of the interesting things, it, it's a challenge, but of course, this is a first world challenge is to explain to young people the difference between value and being able to afford something. That's a, that's a, really, it, it, a really difficult thing to explain to kids is that because I'm not in a position to say to someone, we can't afford to buy a new bike, that you have to talk about values and you have to talk about other people who can't have a new bike, even if they had the right values, they don't have enough money. And so that, that I believe that I will have done my job if I can get my kids to appreciate a, that they are extraordinarily fortunate to be born into not only into a family, but into a society that allows them to live the way they live, but to have an appreciation for the fact that by pure chance of birth, that people in different geographies and different social strata are unable to experience that. And hopefully the uh, desire that you can implant in them to want to do something about it. And I see a lot of young people, there's, I can tell you a whole bunch about how millennials um, you know, have high expectations and they, they, they feel that everything should be given to them and their parents always did all the, everything for them and so they're always looking for other people to tell them what to do. But I can also tell you that if you look hard enough, you'll find a bunch of young people that are absolutely well positioned to carry us into this you know, new world uh, where, where the important questions about things like income inequality are not afterthoughts, but they're actually at the core of important decision making. Um. So kind of, you've got Westcourt, you've now got a job that you love and there's something yeah. interesting about it. What are you going to do after this? I know you have some tenure, you know, you're not going to get fired. <laughs> yeah. um, is there another career for you? I don't think so, other than uh, the way that I participate philanthropically should be the next big thing. You know, when you get to a point uh, where the how much is enough line financially is behind you, the money becomes a means, but not a means to an end because more money, I mean, I mean, I don't want to have my epitaph read, you know, here lies David Kaufman. He made a bunch of really rich people a little bit richer. That is, a little, to me, that's a bit of an empty thing to, to, to be your legacy. Uh, it, well, that's what they want. Yeah, that's what they want. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, uh, when I look at people in the community who have been fortunate enough to have done uh, uh, great things, but also to have you know, reaped enormous rewards for doing great things, because that's not always the case. You know, the greatest doctors in the world are not the wealthiest people in the world, but they can change things. 
um, that, that the ones that I appreciate the most are the ones that say, I'm going to give a lot more of my money. That's the easy part and my time to causes that I believe in. So I've, I've gotten already very involved with some things such as Mount Sinai hospital here in, in, uh, uh, in Toronto, as well as sick kids. The funny thing is that we're actually huge supporters of Holy Blossom Temple, which is the temple that we're members of. Um, I could not be a more secular Jew. I'm a very proud Jew uh, and, and culturally, but I'm a very secular person. And I'm not very spiritual. And yet I derive so much pleasure out of being, not only giving money to them, but also, and Sarah does an amazing job at this, welcoming new members and bringing them into the community because the work that they do there for the community at large is amazing. And so when you can walk away, you know, adding to the epitaph about making rich people a little bit richer and who tried to change the world any way they could, I'd say that would be a little bit more interesting. So, um, I mean, I'm 50, I'm not 80. And so I would like to think that Westcourt is something that will continue to grow under my leadership, but with a lot of amazing team members along the way, including my business partner, Robert Jansen, who is an amazing individual, a great partner, uh, and the chair of our advisory council, Patricia Suputo, who has taught me a lot and continues, uh, continues to, um, that, that the, the greatest, you would know that you would really achieve something when you become a little bit less relevant in your own enterprise. That's actually a good thing. And as that happens, and I have more time in my life, I would like to continue to spend, of course, a lot of time with my family, but I would also like to get a lot more involved uh, in philanthropy, not for its own sake, not because I wanna be in the National Post in the society pages, because people who know me know that I go to bed at nine o'clock, and so, it better be before nine o'clock if it's something that I, <laughs> where I'm going to get my picture taken. It's about sitting back and saying, I did that. I did something and that's, that's meaningful and that has a long-term legacy. And that's the easiest thing to say. You know, it's about doing. It's about the most valuable resource I have isn't money, it's time. And so that if I can give of my time, that's something. And, and that's something I also would hope to impart on my kids. Uh, and I'm fortunate to be able to include them already at the end of each year. We, we, uh, we say, yes, you're going to get your Hanukkah present, but also in, instead of getting this, you're going to get this. And I want you to decide where the rest goes because they have to learn early on and they have to make their own decisions, Lawrence, because what's important, there's a lot of very worthy causes out there. And it's not for me to dictate to them what's important. They have to figure that out on their own. Right. And, you know, you look at people like Bill Gates, who has done an unbelievable job. Now, there's someone that applies creativity to philanthropy. Right. I mean, you know, that's a pretty big idea saying, I'm going to cure malaria in the world. <laughs> now, luckily, he's also one of the world's richest people. And so he's able to finance, you know, that audacious goal. Uh, I, I don't think that I'm going to be able to have goals that are quite, quite that far reaching. But if, if we can achieve something and I can look back and say, I did that. Uh, and I'm remembered as a person of integrity who tried to change the world. I think that would be a better way to be remembered than just someone that changed finance. David, thank you. This has been one of the most enjoyable hours I've spent. And I look forward to this broadcast and we'll let you know when it's on. And again, thank you so much for your time. Lawrence, it was my pleasure. And thank you for having me and giving me an opportunity because I know how out of the box it was for you to have someone in finance on, on, a, on a series that is really devoted to creativity. So I hope that I was able to share things that people might find interesting and I'd be happy to do it again anytime. Terrific, thank you. Look forward to it. All the best. Yeah. 
This episode has been brought to you by the National Advertising Challenge, North America's only brief-based challenge that sends winners to Cannes, France. 